Chapter Two of Black Ivory by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Two: Yusuf's Black Ivory. When Yusuf entered the woods, as before stated, for the purpose of looking after his property, he followed a narrow footpath for about half a mile, which led him to another part of the same creek, at the entrance of which we introduced him to the reader. Here, under the deep shadow of umbracious trees, floated five large Arab boats, or dows, similar to the one which had already been referred to. They were quite empty, and apparently unguarded, for when Yusuf went down to the bank and stood on a projecting rock which overlooked them, no one replied to his low-toned hail. Repeating it once and still receiving no answer, he sat quietly down on the rocks, lighted a small pipe, and waited patiently. The boats, as we have said, were empty, but there were some curious appliances in them, having the appearance of chains and wristlets and bars of iron running along and fixed to their decks or rather to the flooring of their holds. Their long yards and sails were cleared and ready for hoisting. After the lapse of ten or fifteen minutes Yusuf raised his head, for he had been meditating deeply, if one might judge from his attitude, and glanced in the direction of an opening in the bushes whence issued a silent and singular train of human beings. They were negroes, secured by the necks or wrists, men, women, and children, and guarded by armed half-caste Portuguese. When a certain number of them, about a hundred or so, had issued from the wood and crowded the banks of the creek, they were ordered to stand still and the leader of the band advanced towards his master. These were some of Yusuf's goods and chattels, his cattle, his black ivory. "'You have been long in coming, Musa,' said the Arab trader as the man approached. "'I have,' replied Musa, somewhat gruffly but the road was rough and long, and the cattle were ill-conditioned, as you see. The two men spoke in the Portuguese tongue, but as the natives and settlers on that coast speak a variety of languages and dialects, we have no alternative, good reader, but to render all into English. "'Make the more haste now,' said Yusuf. "'Get them shipped at once, for we sail when the moon goes down. Pick out the weakest among the lot, those most likely to die,' and put them by themselves in the small dow. If we must sacrifice some of our wares to these meddling dogs, the English, we may as well give them the refuse. Without remark, Musa turned on his heel and proceeded to obey orders. Truly, to one unaccustomed to such scenes, it would have appeared that all the negroes on the spot were most likely to die, for a more wretched, starved set of human beings could scarcely be imagined. They had just terminated a journey on foot of several hundreds of miles, with insufficient food and under severe hardships. Nearly all of them were lean to a degree, many so reduced that they resembled nothing but skeletons with a covering of black leather. Some of the children were very young, many of them mere infants, clinging to the backs of the poor mothers who had carried them over mountain and plain, through swamp and jungle in blistering sunshine and pelting rain for many weary days. But prolonged suffering had changed the nature of these little ones. They were as silent and almost as intelligently anxious as their seniors. There were no old pieces of merchandise there. Most were youthful or in the prime of their life. A few were middle-aged. 
Difficult though the task appeared to be, Musa soon selected about fifty men and women and a few children who were so fearfully emaciated that their chances of surviving appeared but small. These were cast loose and placed in a sitting posture in the hold of the smallest dhow, as close together as they could be packed. Their removal from the bank made room for more to issue from the wood, which they did in a continuous stream. Batch after batch were cast loose and stowed away in the manner already described, until the holds of two of the large boats were filled, each being capable of containing about two hundred souls. This was so far satisfactory to Yusuf, who had expended a great deal of money on the venture, satisfactory even although he had lost a large proportion of the goods, four-fifths at least, if not more, by death and otherwise, on the way down to the coast. But that was a matter of little consequence. The price of black ivory was up in the market just at that time, and the worthy merchant could stand a good deal of loss. The embarkation was effected with wonderful celerity and in comparative silence. Only the stern voices of the half-caste Portuguese were heard as they ordered the slaves to move, mingled with the occasional clank of a chain. But no sounds proceeded from the thoroughly subdued and worn-out slaves louder than a sigh or a half-suppressed wail with now and then a shriek of pain when some of the weaker among them were quickened into activity by the lash. When all had been embarked two of the five boats still remained empty, but Yusuf had a pretty good idea of the particular points along the coast where more cattle of a similar kind could be purchased. Therefore, after stationing some of his men armed with muskets to guard the boats, he returned with the remainder of them to the hut in which the Englishmen had been left. There he found Azinte and her guardians. He seemed angry with the latter at first, but after a few minutes thought appeared to recover his equanimity, and ordered the men to remove the ropes with which the girl was tethered. Then, bidding her follow him, he left the hut without taking any notice of the Englishman further than to say he would be back shortly before the time of sailing. Yusuf's motions were unusually slow and his mien somewhat dignified, but when occasion required he could throw off his oriental dignity and step out with the activity of a monkey. It was so on this occasion, insomuch that Azinte was obliged occasionally to run in order to keep up with him. Proceeding about two miles in the woods along the shore without halt, he came out at length on the margin of a bay, at the head of which lay a small town. It was a sorry-looking place, composed of wretchedly built houses, most of which were thatched with the leaves of the coconut palm. Nevertheless, such as it was, it possessed a mud fort, an army of about thirty soldiers, composed of Portuguese convicts who had been sent there as a punishment for many crimes, a governor, who was understood to be honorable, having been placed there by His Excellency the Governor-General at Mozambique, who had been himself appointed by His Most Faithful Majesty the King of Portugal. It was in quest of this governor that Yusuf bent his rapid steps. Besides all the advantages above enumerated, the town drove a small trade in ivory, ebony, indigo, or weed, gum copo, coconut oil, and other articles of native produce, and a very large, though secret, trade in human bodies and, we had almost written, souls, but the worthy people who dwelt there could not fetter souls, although they could, and very often did, set them free. 
Signor Francisco Alfonso Toledo Bignoso Letotti, the governor, was seated at the open window of his parlor, just before Yusuf made his appearance, conversing lightly with his only daughter, the Signorita Margarita, a beautiful brunette of about eighteen summers, who had been brought up and educated in Portugal. The governor's wife had died a year before this time in Madrid, and the signora had gone to live with her father on the east coast of Africa, at which place she had arrived just six weeks previous to the date of the opening of our tale. Among the various boats and vessels at anchor in the bay were seen the tapering masts of a British war-steamer. The signorina and her sire were engaged in a gossiping criticism of the officers of this vessel when Yusuf was announced. Audience was immediately granted. Entering the room with Azinta close behind him, the Arab stopped abruptly on beholding Margarita and bowed gravely. "'Leave us, my child,' said the governor in Portuguese. "'I have business to transact with this man. And why may I not stay to assist you, father, in this wonderful man-mystery of transacting business?' asked Margarita with an arch smile. "'Whenever you men want to get rid of women you frighten them away with business.' If you wish not to explain something to us, you shake your wise heads and call it business. Is that not so? Come, Arab, she added, turning with a sprightly air to Yusuf. You are a traitor, I suppose. All Arabs are, I am told. Well, what sort of wares have you got to sell? Yusuf smiled slightly as he stepped aside and pointed to Azinta. The speaking countenance of the Portuguese girl changed as if by magic. She had seen little and thought little about slavery during the brief period of her residence on the coast, and had scarcely realized the fact that Sambo, with the thick lips, her father's gardener, or the black cook, and housemaids were slaves. It was the first entrance of a new idea with something like power into her mind when she saw a delicate, mild-looking, and pretty negro girl actually offered for sale. Before she could bethink herself of any remark the door opened, and in walked unannounced a man on whose somewhat handsome countenance villainy was clearly stamped. "'Ha! Marizano!' exclaimed Signor Litotti, rising. "'You have thought better of it, I presume.' "'I have, and I agree to your arrangement,' replied Marizano, in an off-hand, surly tone. "'There is nothing like necessity,' returned the governor with a laugh. "'Twere better to enjoy a roving life for a short time with a lightish purse in one's pocket than to attempt to keep a heavy purse with the addition of several ounces of lead in one's breast? How say you?' Marizano smiled and shrugged his broad shoulders, but made no reply, for just then his attention had been attracted to the slave-girl. "'For sale?' he inquired of the Arab carelessly. Yusuf bowed his head slightly. "'How much?' "'Come, come, gentlemen,' interposed the governor, with a laugh and a glance at his daughter. "'You can settle this matter elsewhere. Yusuf has come here to talk with me on other matters. Now, Margarita, dear, you had better retire for a short time.' When the signorita had somewhat unwillingly obeyed, the governor turned to Yusuf. "'I presume you have no objection to Marizano's presence during our interview, seeing that he is almost as well acquainted with your affairs as yourself?' As Yusuf expressed no objection, the three drew their chairs together and sat down to a prolonged private and very interesting palaver. We do not mean to try the reader's patience by dragging him through the whole of it, 
nevertheless, a small portion of what was said is essential to the development of our tale. Well, then, be it as you wish, Yusuf, said the governor, folding up a fresh cigarette. You are one of the most active traders on the coast, and never fail to keep correct accounts with your governor. You deserve encouragement, but I fear that you run considerable risk. I know that, but those who make much must risk much. Bravo! exclaimed Marizano, with hearty approval. Nevertheless, those who risk most do not always make most. Contrast yourself with me now. You risk your boats and cattle and become rich. I risk my life, and behold, I am fleeced. I have little or nothing left, barely enough to buy yonder girl from you, though I think I have enough for that. He pointed as he spoke to Azinta, who stood on the spot where she had been left near the door. "'Tell me,' resumed Signor Litotti, "'how do you propose to elude the English cruiser, for I know that her captain has got wind of your whereabouts, and is determined to watch the coast closely, and let me tell you, he is a vigorous, intelligent man.' "'You tell me he has a number of captured slaves already in his ship?' said Yusuf. "'Yes, some hundreds, I believe.' "'He must go somewhere to land these, I presume,' rejoined the Arab. Yusuf referred here to the fact that when a British cruiser engaged in the suppression of the slave trade on the east coast of Africa has captured a number of slaves, she is under the necessity of running to the Seychelles Islands, Aden, or some other British port of discharge, to land them there as free men, because were she to set them free on any part of the coast of Africa belonging either to Portugal or the Sultan of Zanzibar, they would certainly be recaptured and again enslaved. When therefore the cruisers are absent, it may be two or three weeks of this duty, the traders in human flesh of course make the most of their opportunity to run cargoes of slaves to those ports in Arabia and Persia where they always find a ready market. On the present occasion Yusuf conceived that the captain of the Firefly might be obliged to take this course to get rid of the negroes already on board, who were, of course, consuming his provisions, besides being an extremely disagreeable cargo, many of them being diseased and covered with sores owing to their cruel treatment on board the slave dows. He won't go, however, till he has haunted the coast north and south for you, so he assures me said the governor with a laugh. Well, I must start to-night, therefore I shall give him a small pill to swallow, which will take him out of the way, said Yusuf, rising to leave the room. I wish you both success, said the governor, as Marizano also rose to depart, but I fear that you will find the Englishman very troublesome. Adieu. The Arab and the half-caste went out talking earnestly together, and followed by Azanti, and immediately afterwards the Signorina Margarita entered hurriedly. Father, you must buy that slave girl for me. I want a pretty slave all to myself, she said with unwanted vehemence. Impossible, my child, replied the governor kindly, for he was very fond as well as proud of his daughter. Why impossible? Have you not enough of money? Yes, plenty of that, but I fear she is already bespoken, and I should not like to interfere. Bespoken? Do you mean sold? cried Margarita, seizing her father's hand. Not sold to that man Marizano. I think she must be by this time, for he's a prompt man of business and not easily thwarted when he sets his mind to a thing. The signorina clasped her hands before her eyes and stood for a moment motionless, 
Then, rushing wildly from the room, she passed into another apartment, the windows of which commanded a view of a considerable part of the road which led from the house along the shore. There she saw the Arab and his friend walking leisurely along as if in earnest converse, while Azinta followed meekly behind. The signorina stood gazing at them with clenched hands, in an agony of uncertainty as to what course she ought to pursue, and so wrapped up in her thoughts that she failed to observe a strapping young lieutenant of HMS steamer Firefly who had entered the room and stood close to her side. Now this same lieutenant happened to be wildly in love with Signorita Margarita. He had met her frequently at her father's table, where, in company with his captain, he was entertained with great hospitality, and on which occasions the captain was assisted by the governor in his investigations into the slave trade. Lieutenant Lindsay had taken the romantic plunge with all the charming enthusiasm of inexperienced youth, and entertained the firm conviction that, if Signorina Margarita did not become his, life would thenceforth be altogether unworthy of consideration. Happiness would be a thing of the past, with which he should have nothing more to do, and death at the cannon's mouth or otherwise would be the only remaining gleam of comfort in his dingy future. "'Something distresses you, I fear,' began the lieutenant, not a little perplexed to find the young lady in such a peculiar mood. Margarita started, glanced at him a moment, and then, with flashing eyes and heightened color, pointed at the three figures on the road. "'Yes, signor,' she said, "'I am distressed, deeply so. Look, do you see yonder two men and the girl walking behind them?' "'I do. Quick, fly after them and bring them hither.' the Arab and the girl, I mean, not the other man. Oh, be quick, else they will be out of sight, and then she will be lost. Quick, if you, if, if you really mean what you have so often told me. Poor Lindsay! It was rather a sudden and severe test of fidelity to be sent forth, to lay violent hands on a man and woman, and bring them forcibly to the governor's house, without any better reason than that a self-willed girl ordered him so to do. At the same time he perceived that, if he did not act promptly, the retreating figures would soon turn into the town and be hopelessly beyond his power of recognition. But, but, he stammered, if they won't come, they must come, threaten my father's high displeasure. Quick, signor, cried the young lady in a commanding tone. Lindsay flung open the casement and leapt through it as being the shortest way out of the house rushed with undignified speed along the road, and overtook the Arab and his friend as they were about to turn into one of the narrow lanes of the town. "'Pardon me,' said the lieutenant, laying his hand on Yusuf's shoulder in his anxiety to make sure of him. "'Will you be so good as to return with me to the governor's residence?' "'By whose orders?' demanded Yusuf, with a look of surprise. "'The orders of Signorita Margarita.' The Arab hesitated, looked somewhat perplexed, and said something in Portuguese to Marizano, who pointed to the slave-girl and spoke with considerable vehemence. Lindsay did not understand what was said, but conjecturing that the half-caste was proposing that Azinte should remain with him, he said, "'The girl must return with you, if you would not incur the governor's displeasure.' Marizano, on having this explained to him, looked with much ferocity at the lieutenant and spoke to Yusuf in wrathful tones but the latter shook his head, and the former, who disliked Marizano's appearance excessively, took not the least notice of him. "'I do go,' said Yusuf, turning back. 
Motioning to Azinte to follow, he retraced his steps with the lieutenant and the slave, while Marizano strode into the town in a towering rage. We need scarcely say that Margarita, having got possession of Azinte, did not find it impossible to persuade her father to purchase her, and that Yusuf, although sorry to disappoint Marizano, who was an important ally and assistant in the slave trade, did not see his way to thwart the wishes of the governor, whose power to interfere with his trade was very great indeed, and to whom he was under the necessity of paying head-money for every slave that was exported by him from that part of the coast. Soon after Azinte had been thus happily rescued from the clutches of two of the greatest villains on the East African coast, where villains of the deepest dye are by no means uncommon, Lindsay met Captain Romer of the Firefly on the beach with his first lieutenant, Mr. Small, who, by the way, happened to be one of the largest men in his ship. The three officers had been invited to dine that day with the governor, and as there seemed no particular occasion for their putting to sea that night, and a fresh supply of water had to be taken on board, the invitation had been accepted, all the more readily, too, that Captain Romer thought it afforded an opportunity for obtaining further information as to the movements of certain notorious slavers who were said to be thereabouts at that time. Lieutenant Lindsay had been sent ashore at an earlier part of the day, accompanied by one of the sailors who understood Portuguese, and who, being a remarkably intelligent man, might, it was thought, acquire some useful information from some of the people of the town. "'Well, Mr. Lindsay, has Jackson been of any use to you?' inquired the captain. "'Not yet,' replied the lieutenant. "'At least I know not what he may have done, not having met him since we parted on landing.' but I have myself been so fortunate as to rescue a slave-girl under somewhat peculiar circumstances. Truly a most romantic and gallant affair, said the captain, laughing, when Lindsay had related the incident, and worthy of being mentioned in dispatches. But I suspect, considering the part that the Signora Margarita played in it, and the fact that you only rescued the girl from one slaveholder in order to hand her over to another, the less that is said about the subject, the better." but here comes Jackson. Perhaps he may have learned something about the scoundrels we are in search of. The seaman referred to approached and touched his cap. What news? demanded the captain, who knew by the twinkle in Jack's eye that he had something interesting to report. I've discovered all about it, sir, replied the man, with an ill-suppressed chuckle. Indeed, come this way. Now, Let's hear what you have to tell, said the captain, when at a sufficient distance from his boat to render the conversation quite private. Well, sir, began Jackson, when I got up into the town outer leaving Mr. Lindsay, who should I meet but a man as had been a messmate of mine, aboard of that there Portuguese ship where I picked up a smattering o' the lingo. Of course we hailed each other and hove to for a spell, and then we made sail for a grog shop where we spliced the main brace. After a deal of tacking and beating about, which enabled me to find out that he'd left the sea and taken to business on his own account, which in them parts seems to mean loafing and doing little or nothing, I went slap into the subject that was uppermost in my mind, and says I to him, says I, they does a great deal of slaving on this here coast, it appears. Black ivory is a profitable trade, ain't it? Why, sir, you should have seen the way he grinned and winked, and opened out on em. Black ivory, says he. Why, Jackson, there's more slaves exported from these here parts and leave than would fill a good-sized city. 
I could tell you, but, says he, pulling up sudden, you won't split on me, messmate. Honor bright, says I, if he don't call tellin' my captain splittin'. Oh, no, says he with a laugh. It's little I care what he knows or does to the pirates, for that's their true name and murderers to boot. But don't let it come to the governor's ears, else I'm a ruined man. I says I wouldn't, and then he goes on to tell me all sorts of anecdotes about their doings, that they does it with the full consent of the governor, who gets head money for every slave exporter, that nearly all the governors of the coast are birds of the same feather, and that the governor-general himself. Footnote. See Council MacLeod's Travels in East Africa, Volume 1, page 306. At Mozambique, winks at it, and makes the subordinate governors pay him tribute. Then he goes on to tell more about the governor of this here town, and says that, though a kind-hearted man is in the main, and very good to his domestic slaves, he encourages the export trade, because it brings him in a splendid revenue, which he has much need of, poor man, for like most, if not all, of the governors on the coast, he do receive nothing like a respectable salary from the Portuguese government at home, and has to make it up by slave trading. Note. See MacLeod's Travels, Volume 1, page 293. It must be explained here that British cruisers were, and still are, kept on the east coast of Africa for the purpose of crushing only the export slave trade. They claim no right to interfere with domestic slavery, an institution which is still legal in the dominions of the Sultan of Zanzibar and in the so-called colonies of Portugal on that coast. "'But that is not the best of it, sir,' continued Jackson with a respectful smile. "'After we'd had our jaw out, I goes off along the road by the beach to think a bit what I'd best do, and have a smoke, for that's what usually sets my brain to work full swing. Being hot, I lay down in the lee of a bush to excogitate. You see, sir, my old messmate told me that there are two men here, the worst characters he'd ever known, ashore or afloat. One they calls Yusuf, an Arab he is, the other Marizano. He's a slave-catcher and an outlaw just now, having taken up arms and rebelled against the Portuguese authorities. Nevertheless, these two men are secretly hand in glove with the governor here, and at this moment there are said to be a lot of slaves ready for shipment and only waiting till the firefly is out of the way. More than this my friend could not tell, so that's why I went to excogitate. I beg pardon, sir, for being so long with my yarn, but I ain't got the knack of cutting it short, sir. That's where it is. Never mind, lad. Go on to the end of it, replied the captain. Did you excogitate anything more? I can't say as I did, sir, but it was curiously enough excogitated for me. When I was lying there looking through the bush at the bay, I sees two men coming along arm in arm. One of them was an Arab. When they was near, I saw the Arab start. I thought he'd seen me and didn't like me. No more did I like him or his comrade. However, I was wrong, for after whispering something very earnest-like to his friend, who laughed very much, but said nothing, they came and sat down not far from the bush where I lay. Now, thinks I, it ain't pleasant to be an eavesdropper. But as I'm here to find out the secrets of villains, and as these two look uncommon like villains, I'll wait a bit. If they broach business as don't concern me or Her Majesty the Queen, I'll squeeze and let them know I'm here before they're properly under way. But if they speaks of what I wants to know, I'll keep quiet. Well, sir, to my surprise, 
the Arab, he speaks in bad English, whereby I came to suppose the other man was an Englishman, but if he is the climate must have spoiled him badly, for I never did see such a ruffian to look at. But he only laughed and didn't speak, so I couldn't be sure. Well, to come to the pint, sir, the Arab said he got hold of two shipwrecked Englishmen, whom he meant to put on board his dow, at that time lying up a river not three miles off, and full of slaves, take em off the coast, seize em when asleep, and heave em overboard. A reason being that he was afraid, if they was left ashore here, they'd discover the town, which they are ignorant of at present, and give the alarm to our ship, sir, and so prevent him getting clear off, which he means to attempt about midnight just after the moon goes down. This unexpected information was very gratifying to Captain Romer, who immediately gave orders to get steam up and have everything in readiness to start the moment he should make his appearance on board, at the same time enjoining absolute silence on his lieutenants and Jackson, who all returned to the Firefly, chuckling inwardly. If they had known that the Arab's information, though partly true, was a ruse, that Jackson had indeed been observed by the keen-eyed Oriental, who had thereupon sat down purposely within earshot, and after a whispered hint to his companion, gave forth such information as would be likely to lead the British cruiser into his snares, speaking in bad English, under the natural impression that the sailor did not understand Portuguese, to the immense amusement of Marizano, who understood the ruse, though he did not understand a single word of what his companion said, had they known all this, we say, it is probable that they would have chuckled less, and, but why indulge in probabilities when facts are before us? The sequel will show that the best laid plans may fail. End of chapter 2 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com